Good evening. I am Susan Poser, Dean of the College of Law at the University of Nebraska. I'm honored to welcome you to the Ian Thompson Forum on World Issues. Tonight, we present the annual Chuck and Linda Wilson Dialogue, which this year will be a debate on the issue of carbon emissions. Chuck and Linda Wilson created this dialogue to explore both sides of an issue important to Nebraska and to the nation. Dr. Chuck Wilson is a retired cardiologist who served on the University of Nebraska Board of Regents for many years. Linda Wilson served on the Lincoln City Council and the Public Building Commission. For more than a quarter century, the university and the Cooper Foundation have partnered with the Lean Center for Performing Arts to bring a diversity of viewpoints on international and public policy issues to the university and to the people of Nebraska in order to promote understanding and encourage debate. This lecture series honors the late E.N. Jack Thompson, longtime president and chair of the Cooper Foundation. Few individuals were as supportive of the university as Jack. We are grateful to the Cooper Foundation, which founded the Thompson Forum, for its ongoing support, and to Jack and his wife, Katie, for creating a fund to support the forum. Tonight, we have the honor to hear from two of the world's leading experts on the public policy of the environment and energy, Dr. Marlowe Lewis and Dr. Gilbert Metcalf. Dr. Marlowe Lewis is a senior fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. He writes on global warming, energy policy, and public policy issues. During the 106th Congress, Dr. Lewis served as staff, staff director of the House Government Reform Subcommittee on National Economic Growth, Natural Resources, and Regulatory Affairs. Lewis was the research director for Citizens Against Government Waste, and he has been a staff consultant to the House Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on International Economic Policy and Trade. Lewis was appointed and served as special assistant to the State Department of International Organization Affairs. Dr. Lewis holds a bachelor's degree in political science from Claremont McKenna College and a doctorate in government from Harvard University. Dr. Gilbert E. Metcalf is a professor of economics at Tufts University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economic Research. He's also a research associate at MIT's Joint Program on the Science and Policy of Global Change and an associate scholar in the Harvard Environmental Economics Program. Metcalf has taught at Princeton University, Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and MIT. He has frequently testified before Congress, served on expert panels, including a National Academies of Sciences panel on energy externalities, and he recently served as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Environment and Energy at the U.S. Department of Treasury. Metcalf received his bachelor's degree in mathematics from Amherst College, a master's degree in agricultural and resource economics from the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and a PhD in economics from Harvard University. This evening, each of our distinguished speakers will deliver an opening statement lasting no more than 15 minutes, beginning with Dr. Metcalf. Then they will engage in a dialogue based on questions I will pose. You, the audience, will have the opportunity to ask questions by writing them on the cards provided by the ushers or by submitting questions through Twitter using hashtag EnThompsonForum. Finally, the speakers will deliver brief closing statements. Autographed books by the speakers will be available for sale in the lobby following this debate. 
The title of tonight's debate is Cutting Carbon Emissions, Better Environment, Worse Economy. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Marlo Lewis and Dr. Gilbert Metcalf. Well, good evening. It's a real pleasure to be here in Lincoln, Nebraska, at the University of Nebraska. Uh, and I'd like to thank uh, Chuck and Linda Wilson for hosting this dialogue. I think it's a wonderful opportunity to actually engage in dialogue on important issues. And certainly, there's need for more engagement on the issue of climate change and, 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 and the right kinds of policies. It's a pleasure to be here in the Midwest. My wife's family's from the Midwest, so we would bring our kids out to uh, visit family in Iowa and Minnesota, and so it's, it's, uh, it's a real treat. And we're particularly looking forward, once this is done, is going out to Kearney, Nebraska, to try to see if we can see some sandhill cranes. So it'll be a real pleasure. So tonight I'm here to talk about uh, policy and from the perspective, my perspective as an economist who's worked on this issue for many years, and the points, uh, I'll start out by saying a little bit, little bit about uh, climate change uh, and what the problem is. Greenhouse gas emissions lead to a buildup, a concentration uh, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, which have uh, impacts on warming and then other weather events that can lead to potential extreme weather. This is, the, this is a classic example of what economists call an externality where one person's actions impact somebody else, uh, but not operating through the marketplace. And this is a global externality that it doesn't matter where the emissions occur, whether a ton of carbon dioxide is released in Nebraska or Massachusetts or the US or China, it has the same impact in terms of, 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 of affecting uh, the, the Earth's ecosystem. So it is, a, it is a classic example of a market failure where competitive markets won't, uh, won't uh, be efficient. But the good news is, is that markets can be harnessed to reduce the cost of fixing the problem, and that's where carbon pricing comes into play, and that's what I'll be speaking about. But let me first just put a graph up here uh, from, uh, from some studies that were done that, that have tracked the concentrations of, of, green, of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere over the past 400,000 years. This is from taking uh, ice core samples and, and extracting gases from tiny little air bubbles. And what you see is that over thousands and thousands of years, we've seen fluctuations in greenhouse gases from roughly 200 parts per million to 300 parts per million. And there's, uh, there is a variation and there is fluctuations. But historically, uh, the pre-industrial age concentrations have never gotten above roughly 280 parts per million. But then if you look in recent eras, what you see is that concentrations have started to grow. And we've literally gone off the chart here. And if you look at more modern data, what you see is that starting from about 1960, where we were at around 310 parts per million, Concentrations have been steadily growing over the past 50 or so years, so that we have just actually just uh, gone over the 400 uh, parts per million mark. So we see, we've seen a dramatic increase uh, in, in concentrations of gases in the atmosphere. And what that has led to is increases in, in surface temperatures uh, around the world in different parts. We've seen uh, a decrease 
in the uh, extent of Arctic ice coverage, and we've also seen uh, increased acidification of the ocean, which has uh, 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 impacts on coral, uh, uh, coral growth, among other, other uh, uh, sea populations. Now, going forward, all we can do is speculate. All we can do is, well, we do more than speculate. We have models that are imperfect, but, but they have been uh, based on, on extraordinary science that is being done. One example of work done by colleagues at, at MIT at the Joint Program in Science and Policy of Global Change, which is a group of atmospheric and ocean scientists along with economists and political scientists, they have done projections, and these are, these are not forecasts. Uh, there's considerable uncertainty, to be sure, but they've done forecasts on what we can expect in the absence of policy between now and the end of the century. And temperature increases, depending on the extent of climate sensitivity, which is a key parameter for translating increased carbon concentrations into temperature increases, you see temperature increases between three and six degrees Celsius uh, in the absence of any kind of policy. And the impacts, we don't really know what the impacts are because we haven't seen those kinds of temperature increases, uh, certainly in, in human times. Now this chart, which is it's a, it's a difficult chart to see, and I apologize for that, but what it shows is over the course of the century, uh, 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 projections of increases in carbon concentrations from roughly 310 parts per million. Uh, the chart ends at the top at 900 parts per million, which is an extraordinary increase if it were to occur. And uh, a study that I did with colleagues at MIT uh, linked ocean and, and atmospheric models with economic models and did projections of what would happen in the absence, given the best information we have, what would happen to concentrations of carbon in the atmosphere. And what the study showed was that in the absence of policy, we would see carbon concentrations exceeding 800 parts per million, which would be unfathomable. It, it's, just, it's, it's just impossible to understand, to know what that would mean. It's really a terra incognita. And I, I want to be very careful in my use of language, but if we are, if we, if there is any concern at all about potentially catastrophic damages, and by catastrophe I'm not thinking apocalyptic movies, the end of the world. What I'm thinking is catastrophic in the sense of outcomes that could lead to extremely large decreases in, in GDP, 20 or 25 percent, which would be really unheard of in modern economies, uh, but, would be, but would be very low probability events. Uh, this would be the realm in which we would, we would see such kinds of events taking place. This is where we're talking about the collapse of global fisheries, the collapse of agriculture in the Midwest uh, with, with, such, with such high uh, concentrations. Now, I can't say that's going to happen. I have no idea if it's going to happen. Uh, scientists don't know if it's going to happen. But these are the kinds of, of when, when we're extrapolating out to to uh, uh, concentrations of, of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere that high, you then have to begin to worry about uh, very, very major impacts on the, on, the, uh, uh, on the ecosystem. Now, we also project, well, what if the developed countries acted, and, but no developing countries acted? Could we, could we solve this problem? And the answer is no. You could lower concentrations by the end of the century a little bit, but we're still up in really unheard of regions. 
Well, if we act globally, we can maintain concentrations, according to this analysis, in the realm of 500 parts per million, which, which I think uh, scholars uh, uh, agree would be something that we could adapt to, we could live with. It's, it's, it's more manageable. Now, the point of, of this is, is really to I illustrate that this is a global problem and requires a global solution. And to that end, there uh, are ongoing uh, negotiations, international negotiations, that have been working since 1992 really to address this, this issue. And in fact, at the end of this year, a new international climate agreement will be hammered out in Paris, which negotiations started in, in 2011 towards this uh, new agreement, which would replace the Kyoto Protocol. And what's important about this is, is that two things. One is that, that unlike the Kyoto Protocol, which only was, um, only developed countries were obligated to take on responsibilities to reduce emissions, developing countries had no obligation, this would apply to all parties, all countries. And that's an important, critically important step given the growth of emissions in developing countries. Today, China is the leading emitter of greenhouse gases. Now, the other thing I should point out is this, the, the agreement that we can expect in Paris will not be sufficiently ambitious to, uh, to address the problem that we face in terms of reducing, reducing emissions and, and keeping uh, greenhouse gas concentrations at a manageable level. But we should think of international negotiations as a relay race and not a sprint, and that, and that there's progress, it's slow, it's frustrating, but we have to keep the dialogue going, we have to keep negotiations going, and get countries like China and India to the table. Now, are there reasons to be optimistic? I think one, in particularly in terms of getting developing countries to engage with the issue, one reason we can just show by looking at what's happening in China today. China has seen extraordinary growth, economic growth, extraordinary rise in wealth, and extraordinary increases in pollution, urban pollution. This is urban pollution in Beijing. It is, it is, uh, uh, it is quite striking how bad the pollution is, much of which is due to, to, to uh, burning coal for, for industry and electricity. And one of the things that's been well documented is that as economies get wealthier, the demand for environmental services uh, and quality increases, and you are seeing a growing constituency in China demanding improvements in environmental quality. And the Chinese leadership is really responding to this, and you're seeing really quite markedly uh, uh, more aggressive actions taken in the most recent five-year plan. And so I think this will both lead to improvements in, in, in local air quality, but would also lead to reductions in, in uh, greenhouse gas emissions. And in fact, in the recent U.S.-China bilateral agreement, China for the first time ever is talking about a date uh, by which they will peak carbon emissions and begin uh, their trajectory downward. This is really a new and, and encouraging phenomenon. They're trying lots of experiments, various carbon pricing experiments, cap-and-trade systems. So they're trying lots of things. They're talking about a carbon tax as well. But, but uh, you know, to be fair, they're also burning a lot of coal. So there's a tremendous amount of work that needs to be done. Now, why should the U.S., the United States, take action on climate if the rest of the world doesn't or if our contribution to reducing emissions is not going to be that great given the important role of developing countries in emissions? And to me, the answer is that we are a world leader. 
And world leaders have to lead. And one of the areas in which we have to lead is in international climate policy. It is absolutely the case that if the United States is to act and is the only one to act, we will not solve this problem. But I believe that it is also the case that if we do not act, other countries will not act. So here, leadership, I think, is going to be incredibly important. So what can we do? What are our options? Well, we're already doing some things. We're doing various subsidies to clean energy production. We used to have ethanol subsidies, uh, uh, excise tax subsidies. We have production and investment tax credits for wind and solar. We have renewable portfolio standards in many states. And we have uh, uh, clean energy standards have been discussed in, in, in different, in different uh, states and countries as well. We also have um, regulation. We have um, uh, fuel economy standards were, were tightened significantly in 2010 so that we should see uh, average fuel economy uh, exceeding, uh, getting as high as 45 miles per gallon uh, by the middle of the next decade. The EPA has uh, uh, unveiled a controversial, to be sure, uh, uh, plan to reduce emissions from, elect from the electric generating sector, the clean power plan. Uh, but there are other things we can do. Research, development, research and development is very important, both for clean technologies as well as capturing and storing carbon. And we also have uh, pricing mechanisms that, here we go, um, there are various market-based mechanisms that we can use that will reduce emissions, whether it be a cap-and-trade system, which caps the total amount of emissions by law and then allows trading to determine who gets to release the emissions, or a carbon a price, a carbon fee, carbon tax. Uh, to me, the, the most effective approaches to take are a combination of carbon pricing and, and research and development spending, aggressive increases in research and development. Now, why is carbon pricing the way to go? Well, the reason is simply that it is the most cost-effective way to reduce emissions. If you look at our experience with the sulfur dioxide uh, trading program uh, for electric utilities to reduce acid rain starting in, uh, in the 90s, 1990s, what we found through analysis is that it reduced the cost of, of, uh, of emissions, of cutting emissions, by 50%. It cut the cost in half of, of achieving a given reduction in emissions because we're harnessing the power of the market and letting individuals make decisions in response to market forces. It was, uh, it, cap and trade systems are relatively straightforward to administer. Carbon uh, fees are even more straightforward to administer. And, and, uh, uh, and, and, you and you can raise revenue with which you can use to lower other taxes. So my view is it's better to tax things you don't like, emissions, rather than things you do like, like labor supply or capital formation. This is uh, a graph from a study by two MIT scholars that looked at the impacts of a carbon pricing program in which revenues were collected and then given back to households in an equal, uh, equal, households, uh, uh, equal rebate to all households. And what you see is that there is a cost of reducing emissions, to be sure, and the cost turns out to be a little over $300 per household, which is less than one-half of 1% 1 of average household income. And with this particular way of giving revenues back, it's actually quite progressive. You see that we have poor households, we're, we're ranking households from the poorest households at the left of the chart to the richest households at the right, and what you see is that the average cost to the poorest households is actually negative, meaning that they would get back more in a rebate 
from the revenues from the carbon pricing scheme, then they're actually paying in higher prices for goods and services because of the cost of energy. Uh, now, as you go up the income scale, the costs turn positive and they get larger, which is what you would see with a progressive kind of, of, of system uh, that leads to the highest cost being borne by those who are consuming the most and consuming the most energy intensive products. This is one example of how you could rebate the monies, but you could do it in other fashions that leads to the impact being the same across all households. There, there are lots of different ways to do it, but a key point is here is that the cost of the economy is quite low for a program that would reduce emissions by 50% by the middle of the century. So for me, there is a climate policy tripod that you want to think about. One leg is that you want to enhance efficiency. So using revenues from carbon pricing to lower uh, marginal tax rates, to lower the corporate income tax or personal income tax rates is, 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 provides a, a boost to the economy. A second leg is that you want to enhance, uh, sorry, maintain equity in the tax system. You don't want to put the burden of carbon pricing on the poorest households in the economy. And the previous slide shows a way that you can do that. In fact, it does it, plus it actually distributes more. And then the third is that we have to be clear that there are losers. There are winners and losers with carbon policy. And we will need transitional assistance for the coal sector, for energy-intensive trade-exposed sectors. We will need uh, uh, transitional temporary assistance to help ease the transition to this new economy. Now, it all sounds well and good, but it is an extraordinarily difficult problem uh, on many dimensions, one of which is the politics of it. The politics are such that the costs are borne uh, today, in, in large measure, of, of reducing emissions, the cost of changing to, uh, to a, uh, a green economy, and the benefits are received in the future in terms of, of, of reduced damages. And of course, the future doesn't vote today. Uh, it, is, it, is the, uh, it, is the, it is current generations that are voting, and you also have these concentrated costs on, on individual sectors that, that will clearly find this a policy that they wish to oppose. So it makes it a, a policy that is easy for politicians to want to kick, kick down the road and not act on. But I think it's, the longer we wait, the more difficult it gets to deal with this. So the way I think about this problem at the end of the day is, is that I will be happy to stipulate that we do not have 100% confidence that our models are generating perfect answers in terms of how bad the problem is, how difficult it will be to resolve this. Uh, but I think about it in the same way that I think about um, uh, owning a home. There's a very low probability that I will have a fire that will burn down my house. Extraordinary low probability. I'm pretty careful. I don't use extension cords under rugs. I don't run around lighting pieces of paper and dropping them on the floor. Uh, I'm pretty careful. And but I also know that if the house does burn down, it's going to be extraordinarily bad for me to do that. So I buy insurance. I buy fire insurance for low probability, high impact events. And I think of climate policy as a form of, of, of insurance that, that we should be thinking about when we set policy. 
It's an inducement, it creates an inducement for clean energy and for innovation to create the technologies that we need to be successful in addressing this problem, combining it with R&D, and, and uh, we, can, we can have some confidence that, that we can uh, address the problem. Now, it, it may be that other countries don't go along, in which, play, in which case we have to step back and say, well, are we gonna act if other countries don't? Then we have to go to plan B. I'm not clear, it's not clear to me what plan B is, but, but, that's, but we can always step back from a policy we start. Finally, I'll just end by noting that, that the, the focus that I've been, focus here has really been on how do we reduce emissions, mitigation, but we also need to be thinking about uh, adaptation and climate resilience. And there are a whole host of questions that we can talk about in the Q&A about impacts on military and regional security, around infrastructure, around what finance can do to help with leveraging resources to, to address this. Lots of questions, it's a, it's a, it's a huge topic, but this is just a, a start for, uh, for what I hope will be a productive conversation. So thank you very much. So glad to be with you all tonight. <clears throat> and Susan, thank you for the introduction. Gib, thank you for an enlightening presentation. Uh, my thesis, and uh, I'm going to try to see if I can get it up here on the screen. Doesn't seem to want to get up there. Well, I don't want to keep you in suspense. Let me just summarize the, the basic, oh, there we are, thank you the basic points I'm going to make. I think that the scientific case for regulating or taxing uh, the world and the United States beyond coal, beyond gas, beyond oil, is much weaker than proponents claim. Fossil fuels, I will argue, have actually made the climate more livable today than at any time in human history. Uh, so often in this public conversation, we hear fossil fuels uh, portrayed as some kind of villain, uh, a destructive uh, addiction that um, is leading us all into perdition. But I think you can show that the climate today is the most livable it has, livable it has been at any time in human history. And finally, I will try to persuade you that the carbon reduction agenda poses greater risks to human well-being than the climate problem it purports to solve. And uh, <clears throat> since I only have 15 minutes, I want to plug a book that I didn't write. My friend Alex Epstein did, but I think it's a very accessible and thorough presentation of the perspective that I will be uh, trying to articulate tonight. Anyway, this, the scientific case, as I understand it, for uh, taxing or regulating away our dependence on fossil fuels can be summarized in three main points. Fossil fuel emissions will rapidly warm the planet. This warming will have terrible impacts, and the impacts will be so extreme we won't be able to adapt to them at a reasonable cost, and that's why we have to mitigate them or reduce them. Now, predictions of, of rapid warming and uh, 
Professor Metcalf referred to them at times as projections, and it's true. They're all based on, they're all if-then propositions. If emissions rise to this level, we'll get this much warming. But, but once you make that assumption, you're actually making a forecast or a prediction. And these predictions are based on climate models or computer simulations of the climate, and they're not performing very well. And I'll start with just the two most famous, the ones that really kicked off uh, the global warming movement, that put global warming on the political map. This one here is from NASA scientist James, James Hansen. This is what he presented in congressional testimony in 1988. I know to some people that may be ancient history, but he was there at the invitation of then-Senator Al Gore, and this really got the public's attention. And if you look at that, uh, those lines there, you'll see that the top line, the red line, is what Hansen forecast would happen to global temperatures if governments took no action to reduce emissions. The next one down, the orange one, is what happens if, government free, if governments of the world freeze emissions at the late 1980s level. The yellow line is what Hansen thought would happen if governments took, quote, drastic action to reduce emissions uh, during 1990 to, to the year 2000. And we know that no such drastic action occurred, and yet, look, the, the, the blue lines under there, those are independent observational data sets of how the climate actually behaved. So, and, and moreover, emissions actually grew faster during that period than Hansen's red line projection for the business as usual scenario. So we had greater emissions growth, and yet the actual climate turned out to be cooler than what Hansen forecast if governments took dramatic action. The next slide shows you the other most pivotal of all projections or predictions. This one is from the first IPCC report in 1990. And, what, and uh, that report actually went all the way out to the year 2100. But this just takes the slice that we can actually compare with data. So up to, 19, up to 2014. And you can see that the observed temperatures, which is the blue line, are only about half the warming of the best estimate, which is the red line, and also fall below the bottom end of the range of projections from the ensemble of models that the IPCC used. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Prediction is hard, especially about the future. Give these guys a break, all right? I'm more than happy to, to stipulate to that, but look at this next slide here. These are projections, not of what's going to happen in the future, but what should have happened if the basic climatology of the models were correct and hindcasting what already occurred, okay? And so these, this is 35 years later, many billions of dollars in climate, climate research grants later. The red line is the average of the model's post-diction or hindcasting of what actually occurred. And you can see the, the, the two lines at the bottom there. Those represent four independent data sets, two of them balloon data sets, the other satellites. And so you can see 
that the models today can't even replicate what happened in the past. They overshoot it. And if we look at the next slide, this will show you once again a range of projections from the models compared to the observations. And you see that the, ob the observed temperatures are below the low end of the range of projections. Now, many people have speculated as to what that might mean. There have been dozens of, of possible explanations for this divergence, this growing divergence between model projections and, uh, and actual temperatures. Uh, one, of, one possibility, though, is simply that these models are tuned too hot. They assume too much of what Dr. Metcalf referred to as climate sensitivity. Now, let me get to the second basis for this uh, agenda to tax or regulate us beyond fossil fuels. It is that we're going to see terrible impacts from this very rapid warming, which I have just shown you, uh, based on the data, is not occurring. And this, I just, I just love this because it shows a hurricane spinning out of a coal-fired power plant. That's from Al Gore's movie poster. Um, but interestingly enough, there's exceedingly little data that the warming that we've experienced uh, has had any of these sorts of effects. <clears throat> so what I'm, what, I've got, what I'm showing you here first is this is hurricane frequency in the United States, the frequency of landfalling hurricanes, the hurricanes that actually do damage to the United States, from 1900 to 2013. There has been very measurable global warming since 1900, about 0.8 degrees Celsius, 0.7. In other words, a little over one degree Fahrenheit global warming. The Earth is a big place, so one degree is not nothing. But what we find is a 20% decline in the frequency of landfalling hurricanes, the very reverse that you'd think would happen if if, the, 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 if these carbon dioxide emissions and the resulting warming were playing havoc with our climate. Similarly, there's been about a 20% decline in a measure of overall hurricane strength called the power dis dissipation index. Uh, if you look globally, this is another measure of hurricane strength called accumulated cyclone energy. Right now, we're back down to where accumulated cyclone energy was in the 1970s. This is a slide that shows what are called the normalized damages from hurricanes. If you just look at the monetary losses from hurricanes, they are skyrocketing between 1900 and today. But that's because you have more people and more stuff in harm's way, and also there's been a whole lot of inflation over the last century. If you adjust for population, wealth, and the consumer price index, what you find is no trend whatsoever in hurricane-related damages. In fact, the 1926 Miami hurricane would be the most damaging hurricane if that hurricane had hit in 1926 with today's population and wealth. And you see the same thing globally. This, this is not just hurricanes, but this is all weather-related losses uh, normalized, again, to take into account differences in population uh, wealth, and price levels. Uh, so, th so there's no trend there either, which is really quite amazing since 1960. Uh, what you also find is that since 1990, there has been a reduction in normalized weather-related damages 
as a proportion of global GDP. So, I mean, if this were a terrible crisis, what we would see is that uh, the damages would be increasing as a proportion of wealth. They're not. They're declining. All right. We can look at some other measures here, like one of the, one of the fears about climate change is that it will increase the intensity and frequency of floods. But this is a chart from the U.S. Geological Survey, based on a study by the U.S. Geological Survey, of flood frequency and intensity in the United States. And there has been no change since 1950, no trend. You see a lot of interannual inter fluctuation, but no trend. Um, and the same thing if you look at hurricane, uh, excuse me, tornadoes, it's, uh, it appears that there's even kind of a downward trend. I doubt that this has to anything to do with global atmospherics whatsoever, but uh, it's interesting that tornadoes are not getting more frequent and more intense. Okay, so am I just uh, cherry-picking scientific studies that have cool-looking graphs? Um, no, actually what I'm saying is what you can find in the IPCC report itself. The IPCC is taken by many to be the consensus of, of climatology, the consensus on climate science. And of course, the IPCC doesn't advertise this good news in its press releases, but if you dig through the reports, you will find uh, uh, documentation of, of everything I just said. Um, now, let's get to the next, the third premise, I think, of carbon reduction policy, which is, which is that these impacts are going to be so severe we can't adapt at reasonable cost. Therefore, we must start to reduce these emissions and pay a price for it if necessary. And uh, here's just a humorous poster from the movie The Day After Tomorrow, um, which I think, to which I think uh, Dr. Metcalf alluded when he talked about Hollywood sci-fi disaster films. But look, um, historically, drought was the leading cause of weather-related death, all right, or climate-related death. In the 1920s, if you look at this, that slide there, you'll see that drought was responsible for the deaths of about 472,000 people worldwide. Now, what happened since the 1920s? Well, for one thing, fossil fuel co consumption skyrocketed. And as a result of that, carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere increased by about one third. And in part because of that, the Earth got warmer. And yet, drought-related deaths declined by an amazing 99.8% uh, between the 1920s and the last couple of decades. And that is in spite of the human population in drought-prone areas growing by three to four times. All right, so what caused this remarkable human improvement? I mean, how did this happen in spite of all that warming and all those emissions? Well, fossil-fueled machinery, tractors, harvesters, irrigation pumps. Here I think I'm preaching to the choir. Many of you study agriculture. You know this better than I do. They made agriculture far more productive. So did fertilizers and pesticides made from petroleum and natural gas in factories powered by fossil energy. Fossil fuel transport brought new technology and improved seeds to farms, right? And then also moved produce from farms to distant cities and from food surplus areas to food deficit areas. 
plastics made from fossil fuels and refrigeration powered by fossil energy, reduced spoilage and waste. And then fossil fuels economies, fossil fueled economies created the wealth, the physical assets and the expertise required for disaster relief programs. Plus, and this is just a cherry on the cake, rising CO2 concentrations also boosted uh, crop yields. And the result was a 99.8% reduction in deaths related to drought. And so I have to say thank you, fossil fuels. Now, what you'll find is that similar, similarly remarkable declines in deaths from, uh, from, uh, uh, from, I can't even, I can't even, oh yeah, from storms, I'm having trouble reading it. Um, Anyway, you can see similar declines uh, in deaths related to storms and deaths related to floods and, uh, and also just overall uh, weather-related deaths. Basically, what it is is a 93% reduction in deaths related to extreme weather between the 1920s and today and a 98% reduction in death rates. In other words, deaths per million population. So uh, I, I flashed a picture of my friend's book, and what I really like about the book is, is one of his statements in there, and I'm not quoting, it's a paraphrase, but this is the idea, that human beings using carbon dioxide emitting energy did not take a safe climate and make it dangerous. Rather, people who were empowered with cheap, plentiful, and reliable energy took a naturally dangerous climate and made it dramatically safer. And when we look at the, at the very big picture, by which I mean the history of civilization over the last uh, 250 years, the last 2,000 years, what we find is that fossil fuels have been and remain the chief source of human progress. These two slides that I've just shown you come from a study by an economist, Inder Gokhlani. And what you can see here is that the economies of the world prior to 1750 were truly unsustainable. The average lifespan was about 25 years. Population barely grew at a crawl. It was always held in check every time it edged up a little bit by disease, famine, and war. Slavery and despotism were rampant. And the, these slides show just an amazing correlation between carbon dioxide emissions and population life expectancy, and per capita income. In other words, carbon dioxide emissions are highly correlated with the best overall indicators of sustainability, health, and material welfare. And how was it that fossil fuels liberated mankind from this Malthusian nightmare? Well, they supported an ever-growing array of ever-improving technologies to produce food, sanitize water, cure disease, build infrastructure, transport people and goods, create information networks, and in general, and I think this is a point that's all often lost, but it's very important, fossil fuels, because they're cheap, affordable, and scalable, in other words, they can apply to mass, large masses of people, put superhuman abilities at the beck and call of ordinary folks. And so there is really no empirical evidence that, that today, uh, climate change is holding back this sort of progress. Um, this is just some data from a, a, a world, uh, world Health Report. Um, 
but it's on malaria. And in Africa, malaria infections have declined 26% just since the year 2000. Um, global, global crop yields have increased by about 160% just since 1961. And, uh, and this, this rise is ongoing. And so now, here's where uh, I, I shift gears a little bit. I, I think this progress is wonderful, but it's not good enough. About 700 million fewer people today live in absolute poverty than was the case in the year 2000. But an estimated 1.2 billion people still struggle to survive on incomes of $1.25 a day. And, you know, however bad climate change may be in some projections of the future, uh, it pales in comparison to the, to, the, to the suffering and misery that poverty causes today. Poverty today is by far the leading cause of preventable illness and premature death in the world. And a chief reason that poor countries are still poor is because they lack modern commercial energy. About 1.3 billion people have no access to electricity. Another 2.3 billion live in communities with limited hours of electric service or you know, unpredictable blackouts and so on. And so a top energy priority of world leaders today, I think, should be to make energy cheaper so that the poorest of the poor can begin to enjoy the health, safety, comfort, and opportunities that we take for granted. But it seems to me that the carbon reduction agenda attempts to do just the reverse of that. It tries to take the world's most affordable, plentiful, and scalable energy sources and make them more costly, make them scarcer. Um, now, it's, it's interesting, this, the climate the, the, the climate negotiations have taken many twists and turns, and this is an analysis that was done years ago, in 2007, by the Department of Energy, and it's somewhat dated, but it still, I think, is pr a pretty good uh, big-picture presentation. This is the projection of emissions between uh, 2000 and, and, and 10, or 2015, roughly, and 2100, and as you can see, Virtually all emissions growth is projected to occur in developing countries. Uh, this is a business as usual scenario, you know, no new policies. Um, so uh, a lot has changed in the climate negotiations, but many people in the climate negotiation business for many years have been pushing ultimately for a target of the world reducing its emissions, total worldwide emissions, 50% by 2050. And so this study, that I've, that, that these graphs that I'm showing you from this Department of, uh, of Energy analysis, the attempt here was to figure out, okay, suppose that the industrial countries were able to succeed in becoming zero emission economies uh, by the year 2050. What would the rest of the world have to do in order for the global total to be 50% below current levels, that is today, by 2050? And it, it looks, you know, from this analysis, that the rest of the world would basically have to keep its emissions almost flatlined. I mean, there could, it could go up, but they would eventually have to drop down pretty quickly so that overall there wasn't too much emissions growth in the developing world either. Now, to me, that looks like a train wreck. 
I just don't know how they do that and not lift their people out of poverty when the most affordable energy in the world today is, is fossil fuels. And so I guess what the thought that I want to leave you with is that it's very dangerous to make political plans to power the world with renewable energy when renewable technologies still have severe deficiencies in cost and performance and there is not a single example in the world yet of a, of a country that has successfully powered its development or any significant part of its development with solar panels, wind turbines, uh, electric vehicles. I mean, all of these things have a future, but um, it's not a foundation for lifting whole countries out of poverty. China has lifted 680 million people out of extreme poverty since 1990. They couldn't have done it with green energy. And I don't think we should expect other countries to do so as well. And so we should be very careful how hard we push uh, the world uh, to reduce emissions because with current and, and foreseeable technologies, that means reducing the use of the fuels that have a proven track record in making the world safer, healthier, cleaner, longer lives, more opportunity. Thank you very much. Well, um, thank you very much, um, Dr. Lewis and, and Dr. Metcalf. Um, we're going to uh, have a conversation now. Um, Dr. Lewis uh, sort of blinded us with science. Uh, and uh, I don't think we're here to, d to discuss the science so much. Uh, we have a, a PhD in economics and one in government. I have one in jurisprudence and social policy. Um, so I don't feel that I can uh, ha help to have a debate, moderate a debate um, about the science and about the validity of, um, of all these charts. And, I, and we didn't give Dr. Metcalf a chance to also dig through those IPCC um, reports to come up with charts. He had some um, science charts. He started with science okay. charts. Okay. Well, yeah. we all had some science charts, but <laughs> okay. I don't want to argue the science. I want to stick, for right. at least initially, to the question tonight. Um, and, and, I'll, and I'll put it this way just to get us started before we get on to larger issues. And that is, uh, I, I know that Dr. Uh, Metcalf talked about a carbon tax, and some people talk about cap and trade. Assuming for a moment that we want to uh, limit emissions, why is the carbon tax the better, um, uh, the better approach? And do you, would you agree with that if, if, we, if we were to say that we do have to limit emissions? So uh, I think the choice between a cap-and-trade program and a carbon tax really comes down to which is politically more uh, feasible, which is more... more uh, palatable. They're really, from an economic perspective, extraordinarily similar. A cap-and-trade system caps total emissions, creates allowances, permits, if you will, to, uh, for the burning of fossil fuels that release emissions that, that need to be surrendered uh, by power plants, industry, 
in the course of doing business. And because those permits are scarce in number relative to business as usual, they have value. And that then creates, um, uh, by putting a value on the permits, it then raises the cost of, of burning fossil fuels. Which then, the goal of course is, is, that, is, is that what you want to do is, is economies work best when the cost of inputs that are used in the production of goods and services reflect all of the costs. The cost of extraction, the cost of, 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 of putting uh, manufacturing, and the cost of any damages they provide. And that's, and that's what the, uh, uh, the permit price would sort of tack on. And similarly for a carbon tax. So there you're setting a price. You're saying here's the price we're going to tack on. And then we'll let markets operate. Either way, markets are, are, are then left to operate so that businesses, uh, consumers can all make their make their own choices as to how best to respond to this price signal that is telling them that the true cost of fossil fuels reflects these additional damages. So it really then comes down to uh, what is, what is um, um, politically more feasible. Back in, in, the, in uh, 2009 when the Waxman-Markey bill, a cap-and-trade bill passed, the House of Representatives, it looked like cap-and-trade was the flavor of the day, this is the way to go forward. Now there's a view in Washington that, well, we tried cap-and-trade, that didn't work. Uh, carbon tax, maybe that's the way we should go because we can use some of that revenue to address real, uh, address a need for revenue if we want to lower other taxes. And so uh, at the end of the day, it, it's, it's however you can build a, a political coalition. Either way, you're using uh, market mechanisms to, to help drive the economy in a productive way. Do you have any view on which of those is a better choice if we're going to use one of them? Yes, neither. Uh, that, that, would, <laughs> that would be my view. I think they both uh, share the same mistaken premise that you can somehow fundamentally move the world in a better direction uh, by handicapping the fuels or the energy sources that are the most economical. Um, uh, one of my, one, one person that I'm proud to call a friend is Professor John Christie, who's a climatologist, and he likes to say if it's not economically sustainable, it's not sustainable. And so you, you have to ask yourself, why is it that after 22 years or more of climate negotiations, we're still wrestling with a truly global treaty, or why is it that even though legislation has been introduced time and time again. Uh, I, I actually did a, a study in which I determined that there were something like 682 uh, bills containing the term greenhouse gases, you know, several score of which are over 100 of which were regulatory, that were introduced from 1990 to the, to the present and none of them was enacted. Now you can, you can say, well, it's those, those terrible fossil fuel lobbyists who are getting in the way. But I think the real reason is that people are, people are unwilling to be forced to rely on an inferior, that is to say, a less affordable and poorer performing energy source than a better one when energy is so critical to all phases of economic life. Energy is really the master resource. It's what gives us the power over natural things to transform them, combine them, move them in ways that turn them into real resources, that is, valuable commodities 
for human beings. Can and I ask so, a, can so I ask a question about sure. this? Why, why would anybody, I mean, I like driving my car as mm -hmm. much as anybody and heating my home. Why, why would there be any kind of a, a conspiracy against the producers of coal if, if people didn't honestly believe that there was a problem? and that there was climate change. And in fact, of course, we have all kinds of scientific evidence on the other side. A UN committee yeah. came out last November mm -hmm. uh, with I, I dire predictions. Right. Yes. So why would anybody make a fuss about this if they didn't think there was a real problem? Oh, some, oh they do. Many people do. But what I'm saying is that both cap and trade and carbon tax uh, have the same basic strategy, which is we are going to move the world toward a new energy system, not by developing new energies that are better than fossil energy, that are genuinely cheaper without subsidies, without market rigging mandates, without preferential taxes. Uh, we're just gonna handicap the energy sources that the, that the global marketplace has selected over, over several hundred years with millions and millions of, act, of independent actors, you know, risking their own capital and, and voting with their own dollars, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna try to build a new system uh, just by penalizing the stuff that works. And I, and I just want to give you a quick analogy. That's not how Henry Ford did it. There was actually a time in this country when horse emissions posed a very serious problem to people. In the around 1900, 27% of U.S. farmland was devoted just to feeding horses. And horses were dying by the tens of thousands in major cities, which, which was a very big health hazard. They also have emissions which attract flies and so on. And if you were to just extrapolate, what would happen if the number of horses continued along with population growth somewhere around the 1950s more farmland than we have today to feed people would be going into feeding horses. Now, what did Henry Ford do? Did he lobby for a manure tax? You know, did he lobby for a, a, a horse portfolio standard that, you know, uh, that, uh, or for a, for a vehicle portfolio standard that, that so many ve motorized vehicles would have to be bought, you know, in, in a certain marketplace? Um, did he, did he so argue Marlo, for, a, for a cap in, on horses, if, I, I think we a have cap a point. and trade program? If I okay. could just cut in and just ask and just point out that nobody denies the powerful benefits of fossil fuels. They really have generated a great deal of, of, of economic I growth. I think a lot of Absolutely people deny no, it. No, you don't, no, but a lot of people do. No, no uh, uh, dispute there. Of course, I would be careful that you don't, in, in terms of the, some of the, the, the data and evidence you showed us, you don't want to be conflating energy access and scientific progress. A lot of the increases in, in longevity come about because of, of scientific progress that is not energy related. But energy is certainly, fossil fuel energy has had great impact. It's an incredibly concentrated form of energy, absolutely. Here's the problem. We're not pricing it appropriately. Now, as someone who believes in markets, mm -hmm. I would think that you would be firmly in, in, in favor of pricing energy to include the, the, any damages that are in, included there. Now, you said you're willing to stipulate damages for the sake of discussion, but it's not that we're penalizing fossil fuels, it's that we simply want them to reflect their true cost. Well, Gib, I think you do that. I, I think you genu genuinely want, want to price them to reflect their true cost. I would have an epistemological uh, quarrel with you. I don't think that anyone knows what these externalities are, and that's partly why I presented 
the science discussion at the beginning because the externality estimates are based on inputs from these models, both in terms of how hot the world gets, but also, presume, also the impacts that supposedly result from the increases in temperatures. Um, and then there's, you know, the economics of, of pricing carbon is as speculative, I think, as, as, the, as the climatology, because what determines the damage of some change in the weather very much has to do with changes in technology. That was the point of my other discussion about how drought-related death has dropped by 99.8% despite warming of the climate. No one can forecast technology change sometimes even a year in advance, five years in advance, let alone out to the year 2100. These social cost of carbon models, which estimate the, the hidden cost of carbon, they go out to the year 2300. That's when Captain James T. Kirk is an old man. He's in retirement by that point. So, so, so this, is, this, is truly models, un, this is truly unknowable, and I would argue that the estimates are, 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 just, are just, you know, sheer guesswork. Okay, go ahead, Dr. Yeah. So the difficulty we have is that, that car, greenhouse gases are a stock pollutant. They, 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 they persist for hundreds of years in the atmosphere, thousands of years for some of these uh, gases. It's true we're working with imperfect models, and it is very easy to cherry-pick and show how models are, have been wrong on so many dimensions. You showed us the the uh, sort of the, the climate hiatus. Of course, there's new evidence on deep water uh, soaking up of temperature. So they're, they're, the scientists can debate all night long as to what's really going on, and there's learning going on. But the problem is, it's like we have a house that has a slow fire in the wall. We can't see it. We, we, we think maybe it's back there. But the problem is, if we wait too long to act, if we wait for precision in modeling, if we wait for precision in, in measuring damages, we may be waiting too long. So it calls for prudent, not, not, not uh, draconian action, but it calls for prudent action starting now as we continue to learn. It's, it's, a, it's a classic example of decision making with incomplete and imperfect information. You can't wait for perfect information. Before we continue this, I'd like to um, remind you to uh Please uh, use cards that the ushers will be handing out now um, to write your own questions down and uh, hand them back to the ushers, and then we will uh, ask some of those questions on stage in, in a couple of moments. Susan, may I just make one, mm -hmm. uh, one further point here, which is that, uh, Gib, I think one of the things that you do and, and pure economists do um, and I'm, I'm, so I'm distinguishing you from the people who I, th and I think they're out there who just want to get fossil fuels because they hate dirty, polluting fossil fuels. But the way you're talking, it sounds like you think that the, that the only real distortion there is in our economy is the externality from fossil fuel consumption, the CO2 emissions, and that, and that therefore we know that if we just apply a carbon tax, we can fix that and make things more efficient. And I would argue, no. There are all kinds of distortions in our economy that are the result of overtaxation, overspending. Uh, there are all kinds of costs that are already concentrated on fossil fuel-related industries. Like if you, if you look at EPA's uh, uh, you know, um, 
mercury air toxic standards rule. You know, EPA's own estimate is $9.6 billion. That falls directly on power plants. That already raises the cost of operating those plants, the cost of electricity. Um, there are hundreds of such rules uh, that apply to fossil fuel production and, uh, and consumption activities. You have, for example, the fact we mentioned this earlier, or I mentioned this earlier today, that you have most of the countries in the world do not recognize property rights to subsurface minerals. That dramatically limits the production of fossil energy, therefore reduces the supply, therefore increases the price. Um, Let me ask another... And so, uh, and an so it's not... So, and, and then we have things like gas taxes. It's, it's far from clear that even if there were an externality that you could identify and quantify, that we wouldn't have already paid for much of it anyway. Is this a sort of classic problem of collective action? I mean, I know that you mentioned, Dr. Metcalf, you sort of mentioned that we ought to be leaders, and then you said that if, we, uh, if nobody else follows us, we'll have to figure out what to do. Is it somehow wrong for us to uh, limit our carbon emissions or tax them or whatever, even if nobody else follows us? Well, look, if, if we limit our emissions... Uh, and other countries don't, then it, it won't, it, we really won't have addressed the problem. So it, it is a problem of collective action, and it is a problem that requires uh, an international and, and collective solution. And this is what makes the climate negotiations so difficult. As I, I, I was very, I try to be very clear, this is a very difficult political problem. It's difficult because the costs are current and the benefits difficult to measure and in the future that's one aspect of it that makes it very difficult. The second aspect is is that we're asking uh, countries around the world to, 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 to act collectively to solve a problem at times when, when we have real concerns about economic growth in Africa and, and parts of Asia and South America. We have, we have all kinds of, of development issues that we wish to address and so, yes, it makes it a huge, hugely a difficult problem. We're talking about uh, uh, the need for thinking how we can transfer technologies to help countries that are too poor to reduce their emissions, to help them financially with it. So it, it leads to an extraordinarily complicated problem. So it's no surprise to me that the international community has moved so slowly in, in, in addressing this problem. But that doesn't mean that it isn't a problem. One question I have here is, what will it take for the public to internalize the risks of climate change at a sufficient level to act? This is sort of gets to the political, uh, the political and uh, leadership question. Does anybody want to talk about that without just denying that it's true? I think there has been a, a, an almost relentless campaign to bring about that internalization. And it's, fear, in my view, it's fear-mongering. You hear it all the time that every time there is a hurricane, there's a drought, it's global warming or it's climate change. And it'll usually be said in a very careful way so that the speaker can't be uh, uh, criticized for being unscientific because, of course, uh, some global atmospheric change over many decades cannot be uh, determined to be res uh, responsible for a particular event. But people say, but this is consistent with what our models show, or this is what we can expect, this is the new normal. 
And so I think there has been a huge push to do, to do just that. And you know, if you, if you just Google climate change or global warming, you'll find 10 million sites, and the vast majority of them will be uh, about how terrible, all these terrible effects. I mean, there are literally hundreds of things that have been attributed to climate change, some of them that are just ridiculous, like increases in acne. But extreme weather, the glaciers extreme glacier weather is Park? definitely one of the things that is used to try to get people where they live. This disaster wiped out your house. It's and you, you know, and and it's because of global warming. The the fact is that our climate is a very volatile and dangerous place. That was that was the, the big point I was trying to make, and that making ourselves richer, more technologically advanced, is the best protection. And so, to me, that is really a valid climate policy. It has done more to make our climate livable than anything else. And therefore, what really worries me are agendas that could subvert this, this market-driven process of using energy in the most affordable way to advance human needs. How do you respond to the, 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 the chance, anyway, that, that it's incorrect, the, 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 the fire in you know, yeah. the, the house that you can't quite see yet? What, what, if, what if it's wrong? What, what if it's wrong? Well, what if you're wrong? I what mean? if I'm wrong? Well, I, I don't know. Well, you... I, I guess we don't have time for you to tell me exactly what it is I said that's, that might be wrong. But I would say that the same, look, you're talking about a risk-risk trade-off here. And you can say the same thing about the climate agenda. What if they're wrong? What if it really isn't possible to lift those, those extra billions of people out of desperate poverty without fossil fuels, but you've made it prohibitively expensive to, to use them? What if they're wrong that, you know, the, that the great... Uh, breakthrough in electric vehicles, in carbon capture, in, in wind turbines and solar panels isn't right around the corner so that we can actually substitute cleaner energies that perform just as well on every other grounds, including affordability, as fossil fuels. So, I mean, I think that's a question you can ask of anybody in this debate. And so, therefore, it's a, just a judgment call that you have where do you think the greater risks to human welfare lie? And I think the greater risks to human welfare lie in a global plan to control how the world uses energy. I, I just, that really spooks me. So I think there's a failure of imagination at times that we, that we think that, that we see how the world operates and that we, that, that we need to continue, we can tweak it a little bit, but that we need to continue in a, in a particular uh, direction. If we go back to 1940 and imagine what the world was like in 2010, we would have all kinds of things we could imagine. There would be flying saucers, there would be space cars. We wouldn't imagine the incredible power of the cellular phone to Correct. open up communications in Africa. We wouldn't understand that the microwave oven will have fundamentally changed eating and cooking habits and freed up all kinds of time uh, for people. So I think that, that one of the reasons for climate policy is that it helps create the right incentives for technological innovation that will lead to the next power source, whether it's small modular nuclear reactors or whether it is it, you know, fusion power. Who knows what it's going to be? I have no idea. But the problem is to lock ourselves into a technology that has been very successful in the past and say that we can't imagine moving beyond that power strikes me as, as a limited view. And I would agree with that because I do imagine uh, energies 
superior to anything we have today, whether it's uh, zero emission carbon energy or some non-carbon source. The thing is, though, that no one had to skew the market in a particular direction in order for cell phones to proliferate and not only become cell phones, but become everything else that we could possibly want a small device to be. You know, they can, they can actually monitor your health uh, indicators if, if you set them up that way. But many technologies have benefited from, from government policy, and so we should, and we should recognize that when there are uh, damages that we're not pricing, that we ought to at least correct the price signals. Well, well, again, but now we're back to the, to the discussion as to whether or not we actually have incorrect pricing. And another, for example, another distortion in the marketplace uh, is right now uh, is that in the United States you can't export crude oil. And that has, that has limited crude oil production in the United States, or the incentive for it, okay? There probably would have been more discovery of it if we could you know, actually... We're, okay, we're, hold on. We're actually exporting a lot of refined products, so we yes, know there are ways around right, that problem. Right, so but okay, really so that's a, a totally irrational right, uh, uh, policy, right? That, that, that hydrocarbon molecules in this form can be exported, but not in that form. That's not economically efficient policy, okay? And so what I'm saying is that right now the United States is finally contributing to an expansion, again, this hasn't happened in decades, of the global oil supply, which is lowering the price of oil, which is increasing the consumption. So what I'm, what I'm arguing is that that's another policy distortion that actually contributed to keeping the price of oil up. You could say that OPEC itself, to the extent that it has been a successful cartel, has pushed up the price of oil, which well, in global actually, markets, energy hold on, markets, has energy pushed up the price of gas. Dispute that. The export ban has done nothing to the world price of oil. I just, that's oh, the just export ban true. was total hokey. Right. I mean, I agree with you. It, the energy weapon is total hooey. But some people think that OPEC at times has operated in a cartel-like fashion, pushing up the price of oil, dis discouraging its, its uh, consumption. And so what I'm saying is, there are all kinds of distortions in the price of, fo of fossil energy that result already from regulations, from taxes, from bans, from moratoria, and so on. You can't, you're, you're pretending that everything is a perfect free market out there with relation to in relation to fossil energy, except for the externality which you think that you can calculate. Yeah, but you're talking oil. Coal is the issue here. This is a coal problem, not an oil problem. Coal is the major source of greenhouse gas emissions. And again, this is what makes this a particularly difficult problem because the United States is the Saudi Arabia of coal. We sit on huge coal reserves. And so we have a powerful interest group that is, that is fighting any policy to reduce the value of their assets. And I can understand that point of view. But we need to recognize that, that, uh, that it is an issue that will not be addressed by simply letting the market market operate. Yeah, I have a question from I think which I think is from Twitter. Will an economic incentive for clean energy use make that energy cheaper by increasing consumption in that sector? So should there be incentives so that it does bring the price down and the technology up of things like wind energy, solar energy, so forth? So we've seen the production tax credits for wind and and uh, have been um, quite successful in helping to uh, bring more wind online, which uh, has allowed manufacturers through learning by doing to learn ways to bring the cost down. We see bigger rotors 
uh, uh, bigger turbines, larger, larger generators, so that the cost has come down. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a, it's a slightly Faustian bargain in the sense that uh, subsidies to clean energy um, can, can help an infant industry, but they don't um, necessarily help beyond a certain point when you, when you get to a level of maturity. And more to the point, subsidies end up reducing the cost of energy overall, which has the effect of, of sending the wrong signal to final consumers that, gee, maybe there are ways I can tweak the production process to reduce my energy use and, and still be productive, producing goods and services uh, that are valuable. Well, I mean, I, I think it, it speaks volumes that there are certain energy technologies which ha have really uh, spread all over the country, wind turbines in particular, um, that have the significant market share they do because of mandates, which is simply a law that says you have to derive so much, such percent of your electricity from this source, and the, the, the production tax credit. And what this, this suggests to me is that these technologies really don't pay their own way. And there are all kinds of problems now that are especially becoming apparent uh, in, in Europe, in Germany, for example, because it's, it's really the case that, the, that wind turbines can generate a whole bunch of electricity, more than is being demanded uh, by the baseload at certain times of, of, of the week or, or, the, or the day, and then at other times uh, are, 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 are practically inactive, and the fluctuations are wild, and they don't actually match market demand. I wish um, I, I, I had a bunch of slides that I prepared to show this, but... Um, and this is often the case in summer. In the summertime, it's often very hot because the wind isn't blowing. And so that's when you would want wind energy to come online to add, pe to add peaking power to the baseload power that comes from nuclear or fossil fuels. And that's exactly when the wind isn't blowing. But there are also times in the winter when you want the wind power to, to, to come online because there's an, an increased demand for heating. And uh, I, I had this beautiful chart I, I wanted to show you folks. Uh, this is uh, Germany in Christmas time, where the, the wind electricity just completely fell through the, the floor. There was just no, uh, uh, no electricity being generated whatsoever for, for the better part of a week in this really cold period. And so here's, the, here's what happens then. You need to build additional fossil generating units, like gas, in order to back up the wind when the wind isn't blowing. But it then means that you have to run your gas plant power plants very inefficiently. You have to spin them up and spin them down as the wind power fluctuates. And so now what's happening in Europe is you're getting demands to subsidize natural gas electricity because it's, because it's becoming uneconomic as a backstop for wind. And so one subsidy breeds the demand for another. Uh, and, 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 of course, we also have subsidies in Europe now to help the, uh, to help the energy-intensive companies pay the higher electricity rates because of the carbon cap. So you have ch subsidies chasing subsidies. This is not an efficient outcome. Well, that's why carbon pricing is a better way to go. Let me ask a question that, <laughs> that may... Um, that, that, 
I've seen quite a few versions of this uh, in the questions that I've got from Twitter and, and from the audience, so I'll just read one of them, but it's representative. Um, and it says, Dr. Lewis, if you're saying humans can adapt to a warming climate, which we probably can, and carbon emissions make a more livable climate for humans, is the same true for other species we share with this planet, this planet with? What will be the cost to restore those ecosystems where we mine for coal, etc.? Wow, well... Should we coal, worry about the other species and plants? Oh, of course we should worry about the other species and plants. Um, but I think you have to distinguish here between a climate change as an externality affecting species and coal mining. Um, because mining always has very, uh, or can have very severe impacts at the local level, and that goes for the mining of rare earth minerals, which are used to make the magnets, to spin the turbines, on, 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 the, on the wind uh, generating systems. And, um, you know, you showed, a, you showed a photograph of the pollution in China, and there's also just horrendous pollution in China from its rare earth mineral production, which is an important part of the renewable energy economy. So those issues have to be kept separate. Uh, there's been, you know, there have been many articles written uh, pre predicting mass species extinctions from, uh, from, from global warming or climate change and that the, the, the animals and the plants that are adapted to one altitude or one longitude you know, will have to you know, move up off the, off the mountaintop into the sky somewhere to keep it cool enough. Or, and then you know, it's very hard for plants to migrate and so on. But there really are not a whole lot of bodies that have been found yet, if you, if you will, uh, that this is a, a species disaster, uh, destruction or extinction disaster in the making. There's just a lot of speculation. And part of the reason may, may simply be that it's really not warming them up as much as a lot of these people thought it was, or it would. Do you want to respond? Look, I'm not a climate scientist. I'm not prepared to speak on these issues. I, I, I only know what I read in the papers about destruction of coral reefs from acidification and, and the sensitivity in the Arctic areas, but it really is um, uh, not my area of expertise. We are getting to the end of our uh, debate, and so I'm going to ask um, each of you to take uh, two to three minutes uh, hmm. uh, for a um, closing statement. So would you like to begin? Uh, <clears throat> let's see what I like to begin. Uh, yeah, I think, well, <sighs> just one quick, quick comment on the insurance analogy, uh, looking at a carbon tax or cap and trade as some form of, of climate insurance. And I, I, I really don't think that's, that's a proper analogy because in the kind of insurance you were talking about, Gib, which is fire insurance for your home, you pay a premium and then if something goes drastically wrong, uh, you're made whole, okay? And the way I see these either climate treaties or carbon taxes is that you pay a premium, and if something goes drastically wrong, you get nothing back. In fact, now you're out whatever you paid in the premium. You have fewer resources now to deal with any disaster that might occur, which may be something other than climate change, but you are poorer now than you would otherwise be. And so I guess my general point is that we should want to encourage as much innovation 
technological innovation as possible in the world. Uh, that requires that more and more human beings in the world have access to affordable energy. Putting a price on the most affordable energies is not a good way to do that. And the more energy rich this world becomes and the more affluent it becomes as a result, the more, the more technologies that people can afford to buy but also afford to invent, invent. Because, you know, if you're really just trying to make ends meet uh, or living at a subsistence level, you don't have time for, to get an education to actually contribute to the progress of technology. So the more we are, become a technology-rich, uh, excuse me, an energy-rich technology civilization, the better prepared we will be to, uh, to address any climate change should it happen. And also, I think, I think a richer world is more likely to finally develop the technologies that do not emit anything, zero emission, if that turns out to be something that's really important. I think right now there, it's, it's, it's a greatly exaggerated that this is a planet in peril. I think the real peril comes from holding back the engines of progress, which all rely on this cheap energy that has lifted billions out of poverty, but there are still billions stuck in energy squalor. Thank you. So let me close with a couple of points. One is, is that um, um, Marlowe is, is painted a picture of, of climate activists who are, who are painting a, an apocalyptic view of the world if we don't act. Um, I, I guess I would flip it around and, and say that what we've heard um, is an apocalyptic view of what happens if we price fossil fuels at their true social cost. And, and uh, it strikes me as, as very sensible, basic economic policy that we want our, all of our factors of production to reflect their true cost. That's point one. Point two is that we have enormous needs for, or we have enormous desire to reform our tax system, to reduce our taxes on capital income, to treat our, uh, to, to try to avoid distortions that are keeping uh, foreign profits of, of U.S. firms out of the country where they don't come back and, and lead to greater productivity and prosperity in this country. We know we have, uh, we know we face uh, potentially uh, rising tax rates as baby boomers move further into retirement. So we can think about raising taxes on things we like, like labor supply, capital formation, or we can look at new opportunities that will kill two birds with one stone. It's sometimes been called the double dividend. The idea that we can tax uh, greenhouse gas emitting, uh, emitting products, uh, tax fossil fuels, and use those revenues to lower taxes on, on, on capital, on labor, uh, and to avoid tax increases that we otherwise would have, would have to, um, uh, we would otherwise face to address real fiscal needs of this country. So I think we're just missing an opportunity not to think about uh, the use of environmental policy in creative ways for fiscal policy. And finally, to close, I think we have a real winning solution for energy and environmental policy in this country, which is to replace 
regulatory policy, which is not nearly as effective per dollar uh, to, to get us uh, where we want to be, uh, and replace it with a combination of market-based mechanisms, whether it be cap-and-trade or carbon taxes, with research and development spending to help us uh, along with the price signal in the marketplace to find those technologies that will move us further into the 21st century with 21st energy. So I'm, I'm quite optimistic that we can do that with sensible policy. Thank you. Thank you. That um, concludes our uh, Wilson Dialogue uh, for this year. And uh, let's give another round of applause to Dr. Lewis and Dr. Metcalf. Thanks.